Amen. He is Alpha and Omega and everything in between. He is Lord of everything. Do you believe it this morning? Amen. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to our scriptural passage this morning as we continue in our study of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. This is part 21. Next week is our last week in 1 Corinthians. We'll be taking a bit of a break uh, from uh, a long series. We'll jump into a short series. Ben and I are going to be sharing a series on spiritual habits. We're calling it Roots, and we're talking about some of those spiritual practices that help us to grow in our walk and vitality with the Savior. And then in mid-October, we'll switch horses, and we're going to be talking about some of the issues uh, surrounding our day. We're going to be looking at poverty on the Sunday before the national election. We're going to be talking about government and, and those who rule over us. And we'll be talking about the whole uh, process of the election process for for us and what we are to do. So I'm excited about the fall and what it will uh, provide for us during our teaching times as we gather together on Sunday mornings. But today, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, a long portion in which Paul talks about resurrection of the bodies, of our bodies from the dead and this resurrection hope that we have as followers of Christ. Now, it seems to me that nothing and no question is more fundamental to the human race than this question. What happens when we die? What happens? Because death will come sooner or later to all of us. I think we are all forced to ponder and face this eternal question and to formulate some kind of an answer. When our life here on earth is ended, then what? Now, you know well that there are a number of opinions in current circulation. Some people today will say that nothing happens when we die. We live, we die, and that it's over. Our life is snuffed out. There is no such thing as life after death, and those who believe in it are just buying into a fairy tale because there's nothing that, nothing in us that survives our death. There also are people who believe, uh, genuinely I suppose, believe that we are continually recycled in a long series of reincarnations and that eventually we are reabsorbed into the universe. You will remember a number of years ago a cult by the name of Heaven's Gate who believed that after their mass suicide that they would become extraterrestrials living somewhere behind the Hale-Bopp comet. And we as Christians, we say we believe not sure we always do, but we say we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We recite it in the historic creed of the church. Are they empty words when we recite in this historic creed? And I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. 
The question is, with, with this idea of the afterlife and, and others that we could spend time talking about this morning, who is right? And how can we be sure? And what will happen after death? And as I say, this is a, an all-important issue because death will sooner or later knock on each of our doors. The beautiful words of Thomas Gray in a poem entitled Elegy Written in a Country Churchyard speaks this solemn truth. He said, The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth there gave, awaits alike the inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. We need to come full square in front of the the reality that death will one day come to us all. But then what? If all of our worldly achievements end up in a coffin six feet underground, what gives life meaning and purpose? Is there nothing more than what we see in our temporal lives here on earth? We understand the question in Job 14.14, if a man dies, Will he live again? Again. It seems to me that, that in regards to this whole idea of the resurrected life and our resurrected bodies, the doctrine that Paul is talking about here today, that there is a, a bit of good news and there's a bit of bad news also. The good news is that, that I believe God has revealed His truth about what happens after this life in the Bible, in Scripture, and and lays out for us what uh, eternity and, and the afterlife will be about. The bad news, I think, is that the good news of Jesus Christ does require a personal response. We either need to believe it, embrace it, trust in it, or reject it. Now, for those of us who have believed and have trusted in the finished and atoning work of Christ on the cross, uh, death does not hold any sway over us. The sting of death has been removed. We, I hope you don't dread death. I don't. I, if the Lord would choose to take me home today, so be it. I, I'm at the point in my life I think I'd rather be with the Lord than here on earth. I don't know about how some of you feel, but this old world is getting so evil and so corrupt that I think I'd just rather, if it weren't for my wife and my kids and, and uh, all of you, <laughs> uh, that, that I, I think I'd just rather go on to glory. Life here on earth is, is tough and hard. But there are some who have not yet embraced the gospel of Jesus and who have no hope beyond this life. And as Paul says earlier in chapter 15, you of all men are to be pitied. You are most miserable that you have no hope beyond what we see with our eyes and experience with our five senses. Truth. The truth of Christ demands a decision, a personal verdict. Truth isn't merely out there floating around like some fairy tale that you can believe in or not. The truth about life after death has been revealed by God in the Holy Scriptures and it demands that each person decides, will I believe this or will I reject it? And nowhere is that sort of personal decision more important than when we consider what the Bible has to say 
about the resurrection of the dead. This is a doctrine that I think is hard for our 21st century postmodern minds to really grasp and believe. I think that there are many of us in the church, well-meaning Christians. I often hear Christians talking about the deceased as if they were already enjoying all the fruits of what the Bible calls heaven. And from a biblical standpoint, that simply isn't true. Because there's a part of God's redeeming work that is not yet finished. From a biblical standpoint, the idea that the the believer is already enjoying all the fruits of heaven is not quite right. It's sub-biblical. So what is the state of those who have died but have not received their resurrection bodies yet? Well, the New Testament uses very general language when it talks about the believing dead. It says that the believing dead are with the Lord. The Scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It says that those who believed and have died are with the Lord. Now, what is the... What is the nature of that being with the Lord? Uh, Scripture doesn't seem to be entirely clear on that point. It says they are with Christ, that they are in paradise. We know, according to Scripture, that they are certainly conscious, conscious of where they are and who they are and that they are at rest in the arms of Jesus. But they are either disembodied spirits, which is a common phrase, but one that is incredibly difficult to explain, since we can't, can't even consider what would our spirit be without our body. Have you ever thought about that? What is your spirit without your body? What does that look like? What does it feel like? How, how do you describe that, your spirit without your body? Because it seems that our bodies and our spirits are so inextricably linked. Or, or that the believing dead are given some type of a temporary heavenly body. It's not the finished body that they'll get, but it's a temporary heavenly body. And again, I I think the Bible isn't entirely clear on this point and doesn't answer all the questions that we might throw at it because I believe that this truth is is somewhat beyond our human understanding and comprehension. We, We just can't grasp it. It's just too big for us. And I'm laboring over this particular point this morning because it's very important to me personally because for many years I didn't think much about the resurrection of the dead. I took it by faith and I didn't ponder what that really meant. And I tended to adopt the prevailing view that the current state of the believing dead is more or less equal to what you read in Revelation 21 and 22 and that the resurrection of the dead was some kind of an added benefit that we get later on. But everything about that view, I think, is sub-biblical. You might want to argue with me. I welcome the dialogue. But it seems to me that the great hope of the Christian gospel is that one day, the day has not yet come yet, but the hope of the Christian gospel is that one day our last enemy, which is death, will be finally and ultimately destroyed, and we will be raised bodily. Not just as a spirit, but we will be raised bodily. And until that happens, it hasn't happened yet, 
until that happens, our redemption is not yet complete. Therefore, as long as our saved loved ones are still in the grave, they are in eternal bliss. They are in the arms of Jesus. It's very real. But what they're experiencing now, the believing dead, is less of what they will experience on that day that is yet to come. There's more to come, believe it or not. A better day is coming, believe it or not. And I know the, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is, is difficult for well-educated people like you are. It runs against the whole tenor of contemporary thinking. It asks us to, to believe that bodies that are now resting in the grave will one day come back to life. And if you really ponder that thought deeply, it's, it's a little bit hard to embrace. I mean, after all, think about it. A practical problem. As a pastor, over my uh, 30 years of ministry, I've often been asked to officiate at a funeral, but I've never been asked to officiate at a resurrection. <laughs> Death is a plenty, but as far as I know, there is no verified resurrection in the past 2,000 years. Where are the resurrection? It's a practical problem. We say we believe it. But we don't have any practical experience to understand it all. And the problem we have was the problem for the Corinthian church. And Paul was trying to explain to them because they had been infected with Greek philosophy. And to them, the body was just a husk that contained the soul and the husk. The shell was to be burned so that the soul could go be set free. And that is one of the reasons why some pagans over the annals of history practiced cremation. To let the soul go free. To burn the old carnal flesh. To let it go so that the soul could soar. That is, too, one of the reasons that generally Christians have opposed the practice of cremation. I know that there are many in our society today who are finding it to be an economical uh, way of disposing with the body. And I want to say, for those of you who are wondering, I don't believe that cremation in and of itself is a sin because the body, your body, my body, if we die, if, if the Lord doesn't take us home while we're living, if we die, our body is going to end up as dust anyway. You can buy all the fancy coffins and vaults you want to, but your body is going to be food for worms. So we have a practical problem. By visual evidence, it's hard for us to believe that the dead will ever be raised. You can go out to Laurel Hill Cemetery this afternoon with a loaf of bread and a jug of tea and wait there as the sun sets, waiting for someone to rise from the dead. And unless the trump sounds sometime this afternoon, there's not going to be a resurrection out there. Those bodies are dead. Dead as a doornail. Spirit is with the, present with the Lord, but the body is dead. And the reality of our life here on earth is that death is everywhere. It stalks our trail. Even when we feel safe, we really aren't. 
Is it any wonder that Paul called death the last enemy in verse 26? And that's why Paul is insisting on the resurrection of Christ as the foundation of the gospel of Jesus. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then we will not be raised. And if we are not raised bodily, our preaching is useless, our faith is fruitless, and we have believed in vain, and we are of all men most to be pitied. Verses 12 through 20. Then comes the glorious words of verse 20 when Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That term first fruits, it, it simply means that it's the first in a long series. If there are first fruits, then there must be second fruits and third fruits and so on. And Christ's resurrection from the dead, dear ones, is the down payment. It's the down payment that guarantees that all those who have followed Christ by faith will one day, it hasn't come yet, but one day our bodies will be raised. This is the doctrine, the resurrection of the dead. I love what the Puritan author Thomas Watson said. Such confidence. He says, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Oh, how precious is the dust of a believer. But the question still comes, how will these, what will this be like? How will it happen? What will these resurrected bodies be like? And Paul's answer to this in verse 35 and following says, but some may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Paul's way of answering the question of what this resurrection from the dead will be like, he uses an analogy. He uses a metaphor. He says our earthly bodies are like seeds that you plant in the ground. The seed that you plant in the ground doesn't look like the fruit that it will produce, but you'll never experience, you'll never get the fruit of the harvest unless you plant the seed. Kathy and I, on Friday, our, our days off, we decided to go over to Canfield, Ohio, to the largest county fair. I think it's the largest in, in the entire nation. And I'll tell you what, walking down the thoroughfares, uh, I felt like I was in heaven, smelling the Italian sausage and the French fries and the funnel cakes and the candied apples and the cotton candy. You know, every once in a while, you need to just splurge and enjoy it all. But as we walked around munching on our, our fair food, we happened upon a building that was dedicated entirely to pumpkins and squashes. The room was probably about as big as this one. And you cannot believe the size of the pumpkins in that room. Uh, the best of show, the largest pumpkin at the... Uh, Canfield Fair this year weighed in at a thousand seventy eight and a half pounds. It was absolutely kind of ugly. <laughs> but it was one whopper of a pumpkin. And so I one of the pumpkin growers there is I was talking to him, I because I, I like to have a little jack o' lantern and a little pumpkin on the porch in the fall and all the rest and so I said, how in the world do you, how do you get a big 
pumpkin like that. And he said, you have to have the right seed. And I said, well, where do you get seed? I have some right over here. <laughs> and so he tried to sell me a little packet of three giant pumpkin seeds. And I said, well, well you must have to do something. He said, no, really, if you have fertile soil, you don't, you don't have to inject it with anything. You don't have to cover it. You don't have to do anything. And he, was, he just said, good fertile soil with these seeds. I can guarantee that you'll have at least a pumpkin that will weigh in at 500 pounds or more. I almost fell for his ploy. (laughs) But decided not to partake. But it made me think. If you want pumpkins, you don't go out and plant a pumpkin. If you want pumpkins, you go out and plant a pumpkin seed. And the seed produces the fruit. Ditto for oak trees. If you want an oak tree, you plant an acorn. And that acorn will produce a little baby oak tree. You could look at the acorn all day long, and it will never look like an oak tree, yet that little acorn contains an entire forest of oaks within its humble shell. And Paul uses this analogy of the seed to correct two common errors that were taking place in the church at Corinth. The errors were these. One, that the resurrection body will be, uh, will be identical to the one that was buried. And two, that the resurrection body will be completely unrelated to the original. And Paul was saying both of those ideas are wrong. Paul says, when I die, my body will be planted like a seed in the ground. And that seed must die in order to give life. And that seed and the fruit will bear a likeness to one another. And so the truth is this, that if I die, if the Lord doesn't come back first while I'm living, if I die, my body will be planted in a grave somewhere, six foot under. And someday, on the last day, the trump of the Lord shall sound, And I shall be resurrected bodily. But that body that is resurrected is not the body of Wilbur Jones or Harry Thompson. It is a body that is related to Rick Crocker. Now, it's a new body. It's, thank the Lord, an improved body. (laughs) When it comes up from the grave, it won't be the Rick Crocker I am today. But it won't be someone else either. It'll be a whole new me. Vastly improved by my author, God. And I am to my resurrection body as the acorn is to the, ac- uh, to the oak tree. That's what John meant when he said, What we will be has not yet been made known. 1 John 3, 2. So the reality is, today I'm just an acorn. But tomorrow, I'll be a mighty oak tree. Today, I'm just a nut. Don't you say amen. (laughs) But someday, on the last day, when God resurrects me bodily, I will have a brand new body with none of the imperfections, none of the disease, It will be an everlasting body. It will be an imperishable body. It will be a body of power. It will no longer dishonor and weakness. 
All the things that I've had to deal with physically. Uh, the overwhelming power of death will be destroyed. And this, I think, revolutionizes our view of death. Death is like planting the seed in the ground. And if you never plant the seed, you never reap the harvest. Write it down in big letters. If you want to be raised from the dead, you have to die first. No one will ever be resurrected who wasn't already dead. Which means that death, which seems so fearful to us, is actually the necessary first step to the resurrection. And that's why for the believer, death has lost its sting and grave its victory. And through Jesus Christ, death now becomes the doorway to immortal glory. And as the seed is to the harvest, so we are to what we shall be. Just think about it. What that new body will be like. I want my new body. I want it to look like Michelangelo's David. I've never had a washboard stomach. I, I think that new body ought to be that way. But it will be me. Because the seed's planted in the ground and it has died. It is waiting for the last resurrection. And when the trump sounds, that body, in the twinkling of an eye, that's not the blinking of an eye. It's the twinkling of an eye. Someone has said that the twinkling of an eye is the amount of time that it takes light to move from the iris to the retina of your eye, which is about one-sixteenth of a nanosecond. I don't understand that. But that's how quickly my mortal body, that seed that was planted in the ground, shall be changed, and I shall have a new body that shall live on eternally. And so shall you. But the question comes, and it's a legitimate question. Well, what, what about this? What, what, what about uh, people who are living when the trump sounds? Paul says, oh, that's, that's easy. What about the Christians who don't get into the ground? Paul says, Christ returns. The time of the resurrection happens. What happens to them? Paul says, that's easy. Verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. So he acknowledges that some will not die. We shall not all sleep. What does he mean by sleep? He means death. So it, it means we shall not all die. But he says, but we all shall be, what? Changed. Why do we need to be changed? Why do the living need to be changed? Because the mortal, the incorruptible, cannot inherit the immortal, the, the incorruptible. That's because there's no way to dwell in the incorruptible, immortal kingdom of God in a mortal, corruptible 
body. Therefore, whether you are living or dead as a follower of the Lord, in the twinkling of an eye, you shall be changed. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And Paul says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be in light of this great, glorious future, this wonderful truth. Paul says, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says that first we are to be steadfast and immovable. We're to be stable. How do you become stable? You become stable by having a solid foundation. Who is that solid foundation? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you establish that strong foundation? By being grounded in His holy word. By holding fast to proper teaching. There's also a second admonition there, though. Paul says, we are to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. This is a call to service. You and I are called until that last day. We are called to serve the Lord with gusto. Don't give up. Keep on moving. Keep on going. Keep on serving. No matter how tired and weary you become, you work for the Lord because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not enough to have a solid foundation. You must subsequently build upon that foundation and there must be growth in your life. It's not enough to hold on to biblical teachings. Those teachings must accomplish their work in you and bring forth fruit. Therefore, Paul says, in light of this glorious future, this blessed hope that is ours in Christ, we need to stand firm, be immovable, and be working and laboring for Christ. Don't let death steal your faith. Keep on encouraging each other. Keep on serving the Lord. Keep your eye on the prize. And Paul says, and when we face that final day when death is destroyed, The sting, our last enemy, the sting of death will be removed. The grave will have no victory. In that last battle, the struggle with death, for the children of God, there will be victory, friends. There's a better day coming. My mind goes to a number of the saints of the Lord who have left us in death during the 19 years that I've pastored this church. That list includes not all, but some Gene Cross, Ben Stefano Sr., Fran Nelson, Bill Huntington, Dale Hammerley, Frankie Snyder. Just this past week, Jenny Wirtz left us in death. I wonder, when will the time for our death come? These dear brothers and sisters and others like them now resting in the arms of Jesus, Death has taken them from us, but death cannot, hallelujah, death cannot keep them forever. A better day is coming. And in that day, death will be robbed of its victory and cheated of its sting. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. And what a blessed hope we as believers possess. We can sing with Easter joy the stanza of Wesley's great hymn, Lives again our glorious King, hallelujah. Where, O death, is now thy sting? Alleluia. Dying once, he all doth save. Alleluia. Where's thy victory, O grave? Alleluia. Do you have that hope today? 
do you know that if your life would end today, that there is a glorious, blessed hope that's waiting for you. And though you may be planted as a seed in the ground for a little while, that because Jesus has conquered the grave, that grave will not hold you. But someday, in the twinkling of an eye, that body that is rotting in the ground will, in the twinkling of an eye, be changed into a new body. I tell you what, friends, no matter how much vitamin C or ginseng that you take, no matter how much green tea you ingest, no matter how many pills and all the things that you pop to preserve your life is going to keep the reality of death away. Death is coming. And you need to be prepared because there's death and then the judgment. And the judgment will determine whether you spend an eternity with Christ or you spend an eternity in hell. What have you done with Jesus? Have you made Him your Savior? Do you have a blessed hope? Do you believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes any difference at all? And if you're here today and you're, you're seeking spiritual truth and and not everything that I've said today has made sense to you, but it's prompted some questions within and you want to pursue it further, I'd love to have a dialogue with you. Because I think that there are some people here today that don't have this blessed hope that is ours in Christ. And for some of you, this life is all there is. If the Spirit is striving with you today, I urge you, before you do anything else today, you, you have a talk with the Lord today. Get things straightened away in your relationship with Christ. Nothing is more important. Nothing is more essential. When I pray for revival in our church, this is how I pray, Lord, pour out Your Spirit on us in such a way that we as Your people would desire Christ more than we desire anything else in this world. I pray that we would love the Lord so deeply and long for Him so passionately that His coming would be on our minds all the time. But my fear is that many of us don't think about the coming of the Lord at all because we've been caught up in the affairs of this life. I pray that we would live out our life for Christ and that we would long for that day when we will be with the Lord forever. Just think what that's going to be like. I can't even imagine it. But this is the truth. And this is the truth that Paul brought to the Corinthians and brings to us today through this blessed part of Holy Scripture. Let's give thanks to the Lord and pray, and then we'll go and encourage Greg and Marcia. Thank you, Father, for our time this morning in Your Word, for the encouragement of the Word of God, for how it strengthens our hearts, challenges us. We think we've got life by the tail, doing everything we can to preserve life and to make it better. I'm so glad to know, Lord, that this life is not all there is, but that I have a blessed hope in Jesus Christ. I have a future, and that the grave will not hold me, And that, Lord, someday 
in a moment when we least expect it, the trump will sound. And the dead in Christ will be changed. And those who are living will also be changed. And the perishable will be changed into imperishable. And that which is weak will be made strong. And that which is dishonored will be honored. What an amazing truth this is. Help us to plumb the depths of this truth and pray that it will cause us to stand firm, to be immovable, to share the reason for the hope that we have within us, that for those who don't know the peace of God in their hearts, that as we share this truth, that they will come to believe in the Lord Jesus and share in this blessed hope as well. Thank you for our time together here today, for the blessing it has been. And now we pray, Lord, as you dismiss us, that you would give us peace and grace, and that as we have the opportunity now to encourage our dear friends Greg and Marcia, that they will feel the special love that we have for them and know, Lord, that their labor for you has not been in vain. Bless them abundantly, we pray, and dismiss us with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace and serve the Lord.